On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news, review recent developments in infection control under COVID-19 with Lori Rodericks, discuss environmental cleaning, the use of outside cleaning services, how surveys are different under COVID, and review the vaccine program and discuss the use of N95 masks. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is brought to you through the generous support of our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Intelair, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, Medicus IT, and BHG Patient Lending. This podcast would not be possible without the support of our sponsors, all of whom have been carefully screened for the quality of their products and services and their dedication to the ASC industry. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCpodcast.com and please consider them for your center's needs. Happy holidays and welcome to episode 119 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for December 29th, 2020. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Susan Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Joining me is John Gailey, Chief Operating Officer and owner of AHS, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. And here we are, stuck in the studio for yet another hour. We're not stuck in the studio. <laughs> we just finished recording, or, well, uh, doing live and then recording mm-hmm. the um, a uh, update on the 2021 uh, payment roll here with uh, Christina Benton. And yep. We knew we needed to get this episode out since we interviewed uh, Lori a couple days ago. So, And you enjoy your time in front of the microphone. I don't. do, yeah. I like talking. So <laughs> don't no try to convince <laughs> us of anything else. So I hope every uh, all of our listeners had a uh, wonderful and joyous Christmas. Uh, we certainly did Holiday here. time. Holiday time. Yeah. Um, and uh, we certainly had uh, a nice time here. Very different, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still didn't get – I've only been able to hold my granddaughter twice. But they wouldn't give her up the last time. Did you notice that? We, we <laughs> she was not. sleeping soundly. It was yeah, just as well. Yeah, it was well. probably best yes. that way. But uh, we had a lot of fun. I'm, I'm hoping uh, everybody else has uh, had, had some time off. And we're recording this uh, just before the New Year's. So. And another thing to, to point out, too, is we're, uh, so we're going to do uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, it won't be posted probably until New Year's Day, but we're going to do a, uh, a final episode for the year, which will be a retrospective on 2020. We're going to look back on... Do we have to talk about 2020? <laughs> well, <laughs> we just let it fade away. I, I think what I want to do is like talk about some of the things that we've learned and things that are going to be. Uh, we we talk about a little bit of mm-hmm. this episode is what's what's the permanent change that we're seeing, yep. but really to try to make some predictions for next year. We're going to start doing that. We're going to try to predict what's going to happen next year and see how wrong, <laughs> how absolutely wrong we can be. Yes, but there. Is, but you are right. There are so many things that have changed in 2020. Obviously, yeah. But a lot of them maybe 
you know, permanent changes and some maybe for the better. We've learned yeah. some lessons. And I, I, and I do. I, I believe there actually has been very some very positive things that came out of it. And it's it's time for us to start uh, recognizing that. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, some changes coming up for uh, the ASC podcast with John Gailey and the, uh, um, you know, some of the uh, exciting things that we have heading uh, in uh, into the new year uh, mm-hmm. with new conferences. So suffice to say, our audience is going to have to get used to conferences virtually here. We're, we're getting <laughs> very good at it. We're getting a lot of good feedback on it and people mm-hmm. are attending in larger and larger numbers and our audience for the ASC podcast is increasing uh, pretty su- significantly here. So uh, I just want to thank all of our loyal listeners for this past year. You've made this uh, obviously the most popular <laughs> and the only um, <laughs> podcast in the ASC business. So, And to that end, if you are uh, CASC certified, if you're a certified ambulatory surgery administrator and you're short on your AEUs, don't forget you can get AEU credit for listening to the podcast. Um, so go to the website at ASCPodcast.com and follow the links for AEUs. And, uh, of course, I'm not going to give you a heck of a lot of time to do that if you want to get the hours in for 2020, mm-hmm. uh, given when this is probably going to be posted. But uh, do it quickly and uh, you should be able to fill out the rest of those AEUs. And, and of course, uh, all of our conferences, uh, almost all of our conferences, give uh, AEU credits too. So uh, definitely think about that. So, Sue, it's been a busy uh, week with uh, Mm -hmm. news. Do you want to – of course, the biggest news right now, of course, (laughs) is the vaccine. So, uh, why don't you talk about some of the stuff you've been working on very hard with the vaccines. Okay. And actually, this vaccine requirement that we're going to talk about really has to do more with vaccines that we've been using for a while, flu vaccines and that type of thing. We don't know enough about giving out the COVID vaccine or or the recommendations to really have – come up with anything for that. Um, Other than knowing that it's at least going to re- be, it require the same things for, that a vaccine at would, least, yeah. but there'll be other stuff. Yeah. Yes, it's going to take some some thinking. So Triple H C Chapter 11 requirement that has recently come up in some surveys um, is for documentation that you're following the nationally recognized guidelines for vaccine storage and handling, which would include policies, um, adoption by the governing body, and staff education. So um, a requirement in the CDC guidelines, which is one of the nationally recognized guidelines, is to maintain a vaccine inventory log. And we'll discuss the specifics when we talk to Lori a little bit later. We'll, right. we'll show that interview and, and discuss the things that you should have on that. And we will uh, share in uh, those that are members of the SC Podcast patron program uh, have access to our database, which includes mm-hmm. or will include, uh, you know, some of these new forms that are being developed right now. Yeah. So definitely uh, take a look at that. And in the New York Post yesterday, they reported on a healthcare company in Brooklyn that's being investigated on allegations of not following the appropriate guidelines regarding obtaining and administering the COVID-19 vaccine. And as we've talked about, there's just going to be so many legal implications on all of these COVID-related issues, I think, as we move forward. So the Health Department Commissioner, Howard Zucker, stated that, and I won't say the name of the the center, but that uh, Brooklyn healthcare company. And it's not an ASC, by the way. It's important to note. It, mm-hmm. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a healthcare organization, but it's still very relevant to us. Yep. I'm sorry. Go yep. ahead. That's okay. Um, that they, um, and I'll quote, may have fraudulently obtained COVID-19 vaccine, transferred it to facilities in other parts of the state, which is in violation of state guidelines, and diverted it to members of the public. So the facility said that it did follow the guidelines and that it was approved. Now, Governor Cuomo has said that he plans to sign an executive order that 
will establish a $1 million fine for vaccine-related fraud and can include revocation of state licenses um, for doctors or nurses who violate the rules. Um, he said even patients can be charged if they knowingly receive a vaccine they're not, you know, yet due for. So basically, they're jumping the line. So, you know, they're they're really watching things. So even if, I guess I just wanted to point this out because even when you feel like you're doing the right thing, just be very, very careful. Make sure that that you really know what you're doing and and that you're following all the guidelines. Well, and my concern has been all along that it's just way too easy for, let's say, that you get a hold of a batch of vaccine mm-hmm. and you give it out to your patients and you, or to your employees and then you yeah. have some left over and you say, hey, wait a minute, let's offer it to the family members also. And it sounds yeah. like a good thing. It sounds yeah. like you're being you have an nice. Older mother or something right. like that right. and you think, well, you don't want to waste the vaccine, but yeah. I, you've just you, got to be very careful. You do. And one of the reasons that I'm I'm concerned that we might not be anywhere close to the first on mm-hmm. the list to get the vaccines in the average surgery center simply because, you know, we wouldn't be able to assure that we can give away all the doses mm-hmm. uh, to people that are appropriately yeah. that fall into those categories. So definitely be very careful about all of that and, uh, and uh, recognize, that, I mean, a million-dollar fine is a significant yeah. amount of money. Yeah, and losing your license, And possibly. losing your license for doing that. And, and then uh, the facts that that the person yeah. receiving the vaccine can also be charged mm-hmm. if they know that they're yeah you know if they jumped that, what the line. they were doing and I think you know this is probably a good time to mention I know a lot of uh, centers have been asking what we know about the timing for receiving vaccines and you know we're still kind of waiting I I yeah. did see something that said at least in New York I think next week ambulatory healthcare centers healthcare in general, centers yeah. but I don't know how that's going to work where you're going to get them from yeah you know. It's all yeah, still it's just kind of a waiting game. And then on December 10th, uh, 2020, the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights issued a notice of proposed rulemaking that's also known as NPRM. So I'm going to use that initials in the future. Notice of proposed rulemaking, proposing some changes to the standards under the HIPAA privacy rule. So this is the first kind of major change mm-hmm. uh, since the uh, high-tech rule came out. This notice of uh, uh, proposed rulemaking would make several changes to the individual's privacy rule uh, regarding the right to inspect and obtain copies of the protected health information maintained in a designated record. So uh, here's just a kind of a brief outline of the the change. I don't want to go into a lot of details on it, but I just want to kind of keep people aware of it. And again, this is proposed. It isn't finalized yet, but be prepared for yet another change. And of course, this will, of course, require you to change your uh, notice of privacy practices just like we did when high tech came out. So it would allow individuals to take notes, videos, and photographs when inspecting their health information. So if you give them access to their medical record, now they can take a copy of it. Uh, they can do a video of it. They can uh, take notes while they're doing it. In the past, that wasn't always allowed. So does that mean they wouldn't have to pay for copies? They could just look at it and snap a picture? And maybe you don't know. Question. I don't know why. Yeah, this no, is, that's I never even thought about that. Leave that. it up to the the, uh, the <laughs> documentation nurse to think about. It. I never really went that far, but you're yeah, probably right. Yeah, because you can't charge for them to look at it, but you can charge them for making copies. Hmm. Um, uh, it limits and clarifies the fees that covered mm-hmm. entities may charge for providing access to individuals, because as we all know, that hadn't always been very well set forth. Yeah. Requires healthcare providers to allow patients to review their private health information when it is available at the point of care in conjunction, uh, this would be like during healthcare appo- during a healthcare appointment. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying to them, well, you can come in in 30 days and get access mm-hmm. to it, uh, if it's in the record and it's immediately available and they're there for an appointment, 
anyway, um, they're proposing that that patient be allowed to see that. That could really disrupt. Yeah, you know, that's what flow. I'm thinking. The, the yeah. timeline of that, if they decide, oh, I really want to look through my medical record, yeah. because you can't just hand it to them and walk away. Right. I guess the best no, example know. would be somebody coming back for a, a GI procedure, mm -hmm. a pain procedure. Mm -hmm. I think it would probably happen a lot with pain procedures, mm -hmm. for example, where uh, people come in and you know they say, hey, while I'm here, can I look at my medical record? And this kind of implies that you know, as long as they have the proper authorization, they can yeah. get to do that. As you can see, we're kind of critical about this because, <laughs> well, it's just it complicates an already uh -huh. very complicated uh -huh. situation. It would reduce the time frame provi for providing access to uh, PHI from 30 to 15 days. Now, that's probably not terribly unreasonable. I think yeah. the 30 days always was a lot anyway. Require patients to sign a specific HIPAA authorization before sending certain non-electronic PHI or electronic EHI outside of an electronic health information directly to a third party. So this is actually a good thing. So in lieu of relying on uh, the HIPAA uh, right to access provisions under HIPAA, now you're, they're going to have to fill out a form to do that. So I think that's a, uh, that's, that's a positive step. And then lastly, uh, of the things that we picked out from it, require healthcare providers to transmit an electronic copy of PHI in an electronic health information directly to the healthcare provider or health plan designated by the individual. Now, that's going to be interesting for us because, of course, there's that whole communication issue. In other words, how do you uh, are our systems compatible with those other systems? Are they? Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine you can't send them by you know regular email. So I don't know what that means. And of course, that's kind of the whole point here is that this is just the beginning of the process, and um, hopefully, we'll hear about it soon, uh, more about this soon. I better say the next one because we were just laughing about this. So the Medicare fee for service – on Medicare fee for service claims, the sequestration for – has been suspended. So here, here – so in 2012, the government instituted a 2% payment reduction referred to as a sequestration. It was, it was a temporary sequestration or temporary suspension, or a, a temporary reduction in the fees. So now um, Medicare has temporarily suspended the sequestration. So that's kind of like a double negative there, Sue. We were uh -huh. kind of laughing about that earlier is that they have temporarily suspended the temporary reduction <laughs> in your reimbursement rate. Mm -hmm. The easier way, of course, if if people like you and I who you know try to make things simpler in our lives did it, we would just stop the sequestration – because it was temporary anyway. But no, they decided to spend the temporary reduction. So what this means is that that 2% reduction that you saw in all of your EOBs for Medicare fee-for-service mm -hmm. claims is no longer going to be there. Now, interestingly, about two hours ago, we were on a uh, – we were doing a live um, uh, conference where one of the, uh, the listeners uh, said that they uh, still see the sequestration reimbursement cut in their, elect uh, their uh, EOB, the uh, – Explanation of benefits, um, which we were surprised. All of us that were uh, uh, on the panel were kind of surprised at. So we encouraged them to go back. So here's the interesting thing. Check your EOBs to make sure that the EOBs, um, since I can't remember when the, the reduction started, but make sure that that uh, that sequestration does not show up at the bottom of your EOB now since it's on suspension. Now, this goes through, what is it, March 31st. And then in March 31st, unless it is reenacted, I, I don't even want to think about how you would figure this out. But at least until then, you should not be having that 2% reduction in your, B, in your fee. 
And we want to remind you, don't forget um, the requirement that the ASC must periodically provide the local hospital with written notice of its operations and patient population served. So that phrase comes directly out of the revised conditions for mm-hmm. coverage. I just copied and pasted it right in there. Okay. So it doesn't specify a time frame. just says periodically. And... Remember, this is a local hospital, so it may not be the hospital that you normally have a relationship with. but Like a transfer agreement with, right. Mm-hmm. So that's a very important point is that many of you have had to you know, go to a hospital that isn't necessarily the closest, the closest. hospital. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that whole sentence leaves a lot. <laughs> to, for interpretation. So I, the best thing I can do is say that, uh, again, the, the sentence says the ASC must periodically, no, it doesn't say how frequently, mm-hmm. I would interpret that probably as at least once a year. I would think, yeah. They must periodically provide the local hospital. So that's another question. What is a local hospital? Mm-hmm. I would assume that that would be the hospitals the that closest. are closest to the surgery mm-hmm. center with written notice of its operations. So what is the written, you know, what do they mean by operations? We kind of assume that, and the patient population served, we kind of assume that, you know, I'm a GI center. The type of, yeah, yeah. procedures that does. And this kind of takes the place of a transfer um, agreement. The transfer agreement. Yeah. The, the purpose behind this is that. Uh, CMS did remove the requirement that you have a transfer agreement in place for your ASC. Now, that doesn't mean that the state might not require it. For example, mm-hmm. Ohio requires you to have a transfer agreement. Other states like New York doesn't really require you to have a, a transfer agreement. There's other requirements regarding hospitals, uh, but they don't specifically require you to have a transfer agreement. So uh, regardless of whether you have a transfer agreement or not, you still have to do this reporting. Mm-hmm. We are uh, working on a form, which again, we'll, we'll post on our Patreon page when we finally get it ready so that people can use that form to, to report. And the nice thing about that form is that you'll be able to, um, you know, just kind of keep a copy of it and then send it out every mm-hmm. every 12 months or whenever you feel like it. So so now let's talk about some recent experiences that you've had and yeah. how they apply to everybody. So some of them are uh, kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> we uh, You always love a good story. I know. I always love good stories. So, you know, some of our inspections uh, or our surveys recently have had – have focused on the annual door inspections. And uh, Mm -hmm. Alex uh, Borneman, who's director of operations and our certified – NFPA certified uh, – Person, I mean, we also have Jim Masters, who is our surveyor, who uh, who also has uh, you know got a lot of background in life safety. But Alex kind of pointed out that those annual door inspections need to be done on an annual basis, and it needs to go through all of your your fire doors. So you can't forget about them because the surveyors are asking about this. So when they come out, they're going to want to see that annual uh, door inspection. Now you need someone to do those door inspections who has been trained on performing them. There is some controversy about what they mean by training. So there's an, there are some people that interpret that, that you have to have like a professional door inspector come in. That is not true, but you do need to have somebody that's trained on how to perform those. Now, for example, in our company, Alex is has been trained on how to do it, and he trains other people on how to do these door inspections. Okay. And by the way, Sue, we are going to um, we're going to record um, a training session for okay. that and make that available. So he is uh, he's actually don't. This is how exciting his life is. He's going around taking pictures of doors mm-hmm. and damaged doors to give an explanation of what you would okay. be looking for. I but mean, it's actually kind though, of interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to be able to really see it. Yeah, and I've been trained on how to do it too. It, it's been interesting. I, I've been lucky in the, the places that I've gone into have been like new construction. It's been mm-hmm. very easy. There's really has been no door damage. But Alex has had to inspect a couple places that have had really some significant mm-hmm. damage. It's not difficult to have damaged doors, but um, but a damaged door on the firewall 
uh, impedes its ability to be a fire protective barrier. So that's mm -hmm. why this is important. So your surveyors will be asking to look at this. Uh, we're going to be providing you some uh, resources for training on it. Uh, and let's not forget that you have to do it on an annual basis. And the thing that I learned today was that uh, – so we just had a survey today for a, a pre-open – or not a pre-opening, but a early option survey for a center that opened today. By the way, they passed with flying colors. We have been – the last two surveys, we've had two um, early option uh, surveys in the last um, week. And both of our, our clients, we are so proud of them. They have just uh, – the administrators there, the nurse managers, they did an incredible job. And I am I am so incredibly proud of them. The, um, the, the survey went uh, really flawlessly. Uh, but one, came, one thing that came up during one of them is that the door inspection hadn't been done. And we were not aware that, you know, even after the initial installation of the door, somebody still has to go through and inspect it. Mm. So even though there yeah. was proof that the door was installed according to the manufacturer's uh, specification, we still need to have a door inspection to prove that it's been looked at. So uh, I, we did not know that. Now we do. <laughs> Um, lots of issues with computer systems recently. We've talked about this before, but I do really want to focus on this. Now, I mean, in all fairness, full disclosure here, of course, one of the sponsors of the ASC podcast um, is uh, SIS, Surgical Information Systems. And, of course, we love their system. We love the people there. Ann Geyer is one of our closest friends. And there's a lot of other good systems out there. But here's the problem that we've been running into lately is I'm seeing a lot of new centers being constructed and using – or imagining that they can use the computer system that they might have in their office for their mm -hmm. surgery center. And the problem that they're running into is the inability for that system to generate required reports that you would need for ongoing uh, operations. For example, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, well, two. You need to have some type of an inventory management system, but most systems that have been designed for an office don't have that capability. Mm -hmm. And uh, so inventory management is really critical. To be able to, you know, uh, have a list of all of the uh, of the supplies that you need a for a procedure, uh, a pick list, shall we say, um, is something that's critical to have built into a system. Another thing that you really need to have is the ability to print out a list of all the procedures uh, to send to each of the doctors to be able to do your infection control uh, survey every th every month or every three months, depending upon your situation. Um, so I just really want to emphasize the importance of making sure your owners understand that when you're looking for a computer system, you really need to focus on something that has been designed for the ASC industry. And the good news on that front is you're not talking about a system necessarily that is significantly more expensive than what you would you already have available to you. Uh, it would be cheaper than you know just adapting your existing system, but mm -hmm. then you've got some significant uh, issues also with regard to, you know, the HIPAA uh, separation of the two operations. So uh, enough said about that. I don't want to overemphasize it, but just be very careful, especially as we go into the new year and you start thinking about your capital budget. Maybe it's time to replace your computer system or heaven forbid you're thinking about getting an, um, an EMR system that's not been designed for an ESC. Uh, trust me, you're going to run into a lot of uh, issues there. And uh, another thing that we've run into a lot is um – which is not a new thing. No. Um, lots of turnover. A better way of saying it is it continuing problems yes. with turnover. Yep. 
I think just worse because people are either afraid of getting sick, people are, you know, retiring. Um, so really important, keep your leadership happy. Yeah. Keep everybody as happy as <laughs> right. you can, you know. <laughs> Um, it's just much easier to to keep people there than to try to train somebody new. Yeah, and what I meant by I, I wrote that line there, keeping your leadership happy. So I'm I'm really speaking out to the, uh, you know, to the owners about making mm-hmm. sure they keep their nurse manager and their administrator yeah. happy. And and to the administrator and the nurse manager, what happens if you lose your charge nurses? Mm-hmm. You know, the people under you. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that that really I'm not meaning to. Yeah. Those are the only people. No, everybody no. has to be kept happy yeah. down the line. So. Yeah, but the more. Yeah, it all yeah. kind of flows down, I think, right. is what you're trying, is what yeah. you're saying, too. And, you know, if you do get in the position where you have to hire somebody, just be very careful careful who you're hiring. Don't hire the first person that comes to you with a resume that mentions ASCs. It is important to look for somebody that's familiar with the ASC environment. Yeah. Um, it's been as frustrating. to a hospital, but, yeah. you know. We've done a couple interviews recently for people. So the owners will come back to me and say, hey, I got this great candidate. They've worked in an ASC before and they've uh, worked with AAAC. Well, you do an interview and you find out that this person worked in an ASC, but they were, you know, a nurse on the floor. Mm-hmm. And they were there that during the day that the a- the, uh, the the ASC was surveyed by AAAC. Yeah. They had no yeah. involvement that with that. Or I had another issue recently where uh, uh, an, there was an administrator of a surgery center who was an administrator because he was – the practice manager. Yeah. Uh, and he had a nurse manager that ran the surgery, really ran the surgery center. Mm-hmm. He just, mm-hmm. you know, was her boss. And uh, he knew nothing about quality improvement, knew nothing about the AAAC survey other than he was there for the exit conference and uh, knew, uh, uh, you know, didn't, you know, really didn't have any day-to-day responsibilities. Yeah. And and I said, you know, we can train them to become a good administrator, but don't walk in there assuming mm-hmm. that you can give them all these responsibilities. Yeah. And, and that just gets to another point that Sue and you and I are passionate about because we we have to deal with the mentoring of new uh, uh, new administrators, new nurse managers, literally all the all the time. Mm-hmm. Is that this is not something you learn. You certainly don't learn it in a week. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't learn it in a month. Yeah. You might start to get proficient within three months, but it takes a year. And trust me, I am not just saying this. Uh, and they have to be year. able to devote their time to that. So, you know, yeah. you may have have a lot of different responsibilities that you need this person to be able to handle, but yeah. you really have to allow at the beginning for them some growing time just right. to be able to figure out everything that they need to do. And I also think a lot of it is just, paying attention to their attitude yeah. and their energy level maybe when when you're interviewing them because if somebody comes in and they may sound like they know everything but if they're not willing to take direction from you or they're yeah. too confident I feel like that's almost worse than if somebody comes in and hey you know I, I don't have this experience in these certain areas but you know I'm always willing to you know grow into the role and right. I'm you know I, I love a challenge or whatever and and they're willing to learn and I really put a lot of themselves into this. Well, and let me give two examples too. I, you didn't you didn't do that interview with me. Well, I did an interview a couple days ago, mm-hmm. uh, two candidates. And the first mm-hmm. one came from a women's health center and actually ran a women's health center that was more of a clinic. It didn't actually, it wasn't mm-hmm. an ASC. And uh, she had been in women's uh, health her entire career. And I'm sure she was great at it. Uh, but she ran a clinic and she felt that she was ready to run an ASC. And there was two problems with this particular situation is that the, the, uh, it's an amateur surgery center, you know, so it has, uh, you know, state licensure, federal certification and mm-hmm. accreditation. She only had experience on, um, 
the uh, the state licensure side, uh, none of the other experience. And then second is that she had been in women's health all along, which, by the way, is a very important specialty and there's a lot of specialized knowledge, but so does orthopedics. And the center that she was applying for mm. a job in was orthopedics. Making yeah. a switch from women's health to orth- orthopedics would be a huge sea change. And again, not minimizing at all the incredible knowledge base mm. that she had. As a matter of fact, if she were going to work for a surgery center that did women's health, health, I would actually be ready to say, yeah, she can probably do it. But what disappointed me, so one of the questions I asked her in the interview, and maybe this will give some advice on, on interview techniques mm-hmm. is, <clears throat> what do you think, you know, how, how what, what types of resources are you going to need to transition in orthopedics? And what do you think some of your challenges will be? And she says, well, you know, I, you know, I'm very experienced in, in healthcare mm-hmm. and I learn fast and I'm sure that it won't be that much of a difficult. And the second case, so that, that really kind of turned me off to her mm-hmm. because she wasn't admitting that she was going to need help. If she had just admitted it, she would have, you know, gotten my interest a lot more. Then the second candidate came through and unfortunately he didn't have experience in orthopedics either. <laughs> And he had some other issues, which might, might make him a, a might not make him a good candidate. But when he when I asked him that same question, he said, "You know, John, I got to tell you, uh, the big thing is I know what I don't know at this mm-hmm, point, mm-hmm. and I don't know how I'm going to get that knowledge." Mm-hmm. And you know, I said, uh, "Look at me." <laughs> you know, it's like you know that's what we do as a company is that we you know you're the company that you've applied to has already hired us to do that we can do that and he said then that's great then that's what I'll do I don't know what I don't know and mm-hmm. I, I said at that point you know something that that's the best answer I've received in yeah. an interview yeah. for a long time uh, so two pieces of advice so first of all if you're searching for a job. <laughs> Uh, at another surgery center. Okay. First of all, call me because uh, <laughs> we have a lot of opportunities right now in surgery centers in New York, at yeah. least. Um, and and then, there's a balance between, I think, selling yourself yeah. and sounding overconfident. And like we've had experiences with people that are more interested in proving their knowledge than yeah. they are willing to take advice. So you end up just bumping heads the whole time yeah. and, and you don't get anywhere. Yeah, that's well said. That's well said. So uh, I, just some advice there. And, and another thing I just kind of want to talk about, and I'm probably getting into some trouble for this, is um, – well, uh, you know, one point I, I really do want to emphasize, just because the place they work for was accredited doesn't mean that that individual that you're hiring has knowledge about how to handle mm-hmm. a survey. That's mm-hmm. a completely different skill set. Yeah. I, I did want to mention a couple things that we've run into. We're not – where to get um, – candidates and we're not to get candidates. And I and I hate to say this, and please don't take any offense anybody that's listening that come from these backgrounds, but you have to be very careful about hiring people that come from a hospital, uh, especially those that have been at the hospital for a long period of time because it's a very different skill set in the hospital. They don't run as quickly as we do. There's a lot of additional services there. As I tell nurse managers mm-hmm. that are transitioning from, you know, being a nurse manager on a floor in a, sur- in a hospital to a surgery center, it says when, when you hit yeah. that that uh, that code button. Yeah, you don't get a code team showing up mm-hmm. like you do in a hospital. You get, you know, yeah. it's you, it's you responding to it. Thing is, most people do start at a hospital, so that's not that, my point. Yeah, really... what I mean is that it's tough to go from um, a leadership position in a hospital mm-hmm. into a the uh, a higher leadership position in a surgery center. So, thank you for correcting me on that, yeah. because uh, you know, definitely, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, Jenna come, came from a hospital environment. Yeah. You know, my daughter and uh, one of our senior nurse consultants, and she transitioned well. But it's not like she came in thinking that she could run a surgery center. Mm-hmm. You know, coming directly from 
Trying hospital. Trying to get somebody moving up the ranks. Kind yeah, of you've, you've got to kind of, just like you did in the hospital, you had to mm-hmm. learn, you know, the ropes. You're going to need a little bit of time in the, in the surgery center. So do be very careful about hiring people in high leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Now, they might make a very good charge nurse, as a matter of fact, but to be able to be a director of nursing coming from a floor in a hospital, that's going to be a bit of a transition. And another thing, it does happen. And again, I have a lot of very dear friends that are practice managers out there. Um, but a practice manager going from running a practice, which is an ex- – I mean a very mm-hmm. complex operation. As but a matter different. of fact, mm-hmm. I, I find a practice, a good practice manager and a good uh, ASC administrator you know, are, are at the same level. I mean they need the same level of expertise. And I do think in some ways it takes longer to become a good practice manager than it does to become an ASC administrator because as a practice manager, there's many other factors that you have. Yeah, and you, you often have larger staffs in larger organizations. So um, it's a tough job. But that doesn't mean that you become a good – uh, ASC manager because whereas a practice manager is much more focused on, you know, the schedule and mm-hmm. managing the people and the revenue cycle and expenses. In a surgery center, you've got that whole regulatory thing. So if you're going to put a practice manager in the position of, of running a surgery center, they've got to learn about licensure, certification, accreditation, and that's a lot to swallow. So again, Moving them into that role at a lower level and then moving up the ranks, that mm-hmm. certainly works. But putting them as a practice manager into an ASC setting can be very difficult, a very difficult transaction. And again, I'm going to say this again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes a good year for someone to settle into a new position, either as a nurse manager or an administrator. Give them that time. And Sue, you yeah. said it earlier too. And don't don't think that they can spend 75% of their time in the operating room and then 25% of the time mm-hmm. doing um, administration. That is not an appropriate split of time. Yeah. So where do you look for somebody? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I hate to tell you what not to I do know. and not tell you yeah, what to that's, do. That's a, and she's always <laughs> calling me on the carpet for this. So so I, I do believe, you know, hiring from within is a, is is very important. We, we joke about the, the, you know, I often ask the question, you know, how many of you, uh, you know, went to, uh, you know, went home on Friday and then Monday morning found out you're the new administrator <laughs> and the new surgery, uh, 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 nurse yeah. manager, because so many people got into that position that way. And the, and that's not ideal, but it's better than going out and hiring somebody that doesn't know anything about it and mm-hmm. then giving them good resources. So to yeah. the answer to that, I think, is is look for people in your organization that have a, bri- a bright future. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, this is sometimes tough because, you you know, hiring somebody that might eventually become your successor can can be difficult mm-hmm. to do. I have no problem because I want to retire at some point <laughs> and I'm looking for a successor here. Um, but, you know, not everybody feels that way, yeah. especially if they're relatively young. But, you know, a good leader is somebody that is always looking for somebody else because eventually you're probably going to, you might want to move on. You know, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, you're the administrator for a two-room operating, you know, facility in upstate New York, mm-hmm. you know, and you hate the winters. And you want to move to a four-room, bigger facility down in South Carolina where it's, not, you know, nicer yeah. weather as long as you're not on the ocean um, and during hurricanes. <laughs> and and that's your dream. So, you know, if you're going to do a great job, you should be – and know that's where you want to mm-hmm. be eventually. Find somebody in your organization that you can start mentoring into mm-hmm. that position. And I think um, – and, and and it's – you're going to do a service for – you know, good service for the organization. Mm-hmm. The, your owners are going to appreciate that. Um, you can You can – 
rest well at night knowing that, you know, if something happens in your family and you can't be at work, you know, for, mm -hmm. for a day or a week or a month or a year, you know, somebody's there is going to keep it yeah. going and, and, and your owners will be appreciative of the fact that you thought that far ahead. Uh, so to your point, I yeah. think the best people are those that you grow into the job, you know, within mm -hmm. your own organization. And I think along those lines, I always try to identify people that have an interest in different areas. Yeah. Um, and, and that have that respect of the other staff and that have, you know, the motivation to do things. Because even when you're hiring somebody to take on a larger role, you know, the more people that, that can kind of help out and this person is, uh, you know, does infection surveillance, somebody else, you know, handles a yeah. different role. I think that that just often when people are really overwhelmed by things when they start in that position, it's because they're kind of expected to do it all. Right. And there's really no reason why one person should have to do all of that. That's right. And and, and to that end, you know, try to identify. When, I remember in uh, both the surgery centers that I started myself, um, we identified nurses who would take on, you know, one person would be in charge of uh, employee health, for example. Mm -hmm. One person would handle all the employee health records. Another person would be in charge of, uh, of education, would mm -hmm. be doing the orientation, mandatory education. Another person would be uh, doing the chart audits. Another person would be in charge of infection control. Now, that didn't mean that the nurse manager didn't have anything to do. Trust mm -hmm. me. I mean, just even coordinating those yeah. four positions we just talked about is, is a job. And they can um, just be assisting in it as well. And also, mm -hmm. then you've got some backup. If somebody unexpectedly right. has to leave, you've got some people that at least have a, a passing knowledge of that. Yeah. I, I, I guess I want to mention, I might have mentioned this in an earlier podcast, but about three weeks ago, I did a survey of an organization and I showed up with a, a survey team. There's three of us. And uh, when I showed up at the reception desk, uh, they said, well, the administrator's not here. I said, that's fine. Can we, you know, can we see the nurse manager? <laughs> well, she's not here either. It says, is anybody here in leadership? She says, no. And it's like the three of us on the team looked at each other and said, like, who's in charge right now? And of course, we're talking to a receptionist. The poor woman was like, I mean, she, was, she wasn't frightened. It's just that she didn't have the answers. Mm. We sat there for 45 minutes. I literally dialed the, the main office for the accrediting organization, and, and, and I was about to tell them that uh, nobody had shown up to, to let us in because the rule of thumb is that you need to get in within 15 to 20 minutes. So, of course, we're all sitting back there. The, the survey team is suspicious that they're running around doing something that, you know, mm -hmm. clean up. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we didn't believe them when they said that the uh, there was no, no leadership there. there. Um, so uh, so the first question we asked is, like, who's in charge when you guys yeah. are not here? Now, they actually – they did very well on the survey overall, but it did – it meant that we looked a lot harder. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we did find is that, you know, it was a tough day. And I mean, there's, you know, during COVID, you have to mm -hmm. give exceptions for everything. Yeah. And, and we understood what was going on. But still, you, by the way, never let your survey team wait that long because we're, you we're actually grumpy. That's right. Because we're already writing give up a list of all the additional coffee. things that we're going to need. <laughs> right. And, and to that point, that's a, actually a good point, Sue, is that what I've always said to people, if, if the administrator is 30 minutes out, if you can't get in, anybody in right away, and, and, you know, like we live in upstate New York, the reasons for that could very well be that, you know, they just couldn't get there, you know, that, you know, their car broke down, they had to take mm -hmm. their kids to school, whatever. Um, the first thing you do is always have a backup plan. You say, can I put you in our conference room and I'm going to give you your policies and procedures to get you started here. Here's mm -hmm. the schedule. At least give the authority to somebody in that organization to get them started yeah. and say, I am so sorry. This is just so unusual. Um, and, you know, I mean, 
you caught us off guard. I mean, we're we're running, uh, you know, well right now. It's just it happens to, you know, be a difficult day for us. And those things happen. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. there are days that things don't go quite right. <laughs> Unfortunately, nowadays under COVID, that's pretty much every day. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel like they had a plan mm-hmm. for dealing with mm-hmm. us. And then, then, you know, they made it worse by when the cert- when the people did show up, they kind of said, well, we didn't expect you today. Well, you need to be expecting a surveyor <laughs> any day. I don't, that's not a good answer to that, so. <laughs> Okay, yeah. um, we have an exciting. You and I uh, two days ago um, mm-hmm. recorded this uh, this uh, great interview with Lori, and I, I remember telling you halfway through the interview, Sue, I want to drag this out for you know an <laughs> hour so that we can get uh, one uh, IPCU uh, IPCH uh, unit. In other words, the um, uh, the infection control uh, continuing education mm-hmm. credit, and uh, we said, okay, yeah, we can do that. Well, when we looked down at the clock, it, you know, the interview had already been going on for an hour and fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, you did, by the way, I did check it. It's an hour and four minutes, so oh, okay. uh, it is still a long <laughs> like interview. I cut a lot out. But it was <laughs> a me. great interview. A lot, you know. Of course, uh, Lori is just an incredible wealth of information, mm-hmm. and uh, I think you're going to enjoy, uh, you know, listening to her. And we are going to do a session shortly with her, kind of focusing on infection control specifically. That will be a available also for your uh, for in services for your mm-hmm. staff. So let's take a short break and we'll come back and uh, we'll interview Lori Rodericks, uh, Clinical uh, Director of Clinical Service of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Is your ASC meeting all the infection control requirements in the new normal? Let the team of experts at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey help you be prepared for the new normal with a range of resources. Be prepared for the infection control challenges of your ASC. Our resources include our free podcast. We'll be adding content to help keep you apprised of the changes and the requirements for infection control. And of course, the podcast is always free. And the ASC podcast now has the industry's leading education program for infection control coordinators, which we refer to as the ASC Infection Control Coordinator Training 2020. And we'll be updating this every year, but uh, this training is available at the ASCpodcast.com website. This is a recording of the training program to prepare nurses uh, for the role as an infection control prevention coordinator or to improve the skills of uh, coordinators that already have that position in the ASC setting. And it was recorded on April 7, 2020. This is a full-day course focused both on the basic skills necessary to become an infection control coordinator and to build on skills that current coordinators already have. Particular emphasis is placed on the infection control challenges of our current environment and preparing for more rigorous surveys in the near future. After completing the program, attendees will receive a certificate demonstrating that they received the training. The cost of the training is $199.99, and you can get more information about it at the ASCpodcast.com website. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategy now offers uh, ongoing retainer-based infection control oversight, which includes an annual infection control mock survey, or more frequently if you wish, uh, review and revisions to infection control program annually and, uh, and as needed, annual competencies for your staff on infection control, and that's done during the mock survey, annual training on infection control also done during this survey, and that's designed for your staff, assistance in investigations of any infections that you might have, assistance in preparing your annual infection control risk assessment, and, of course, access to all of the AHS infection control resources that our clients have come to rely on. And for more information on our retainers, visit the Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies website at ah-strategies.com or call John Gailey at 585-594-1167. 
So this is John and Sue, and we're here with uh, Lori Rodericks, who's the Director of Clinical Services for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, and we are recording the day after Christmas. Why are we recording the day after Christmas, Lori? Because we can. <laughs> <laughs> so did you have a good Christmas? Oh, it was very, um, it was lovely. How about you? Same here, same here. Uh, the, the puppy, uh, Santa Claus did visit the puppy extensively, um, <laughs> so... Um, and uh, Santa Claus gave me one of those uh, furbos. Well, it wasn't really Santa Claus. I, I know now that it was Sue. But yes, he figured it out. I figured I, it I tried out. To... <laughs> so, so now uh, with this uh, furbo is one of these uh, treat throwing things that, you know, you, you hook it up and then you can see your dog from uh, anywhere in the world. And then you push this button and you, uh, you can throw a, uh, a treat at her. <laughs> The so. first one was kind of funny because she was had her face right up against the little the camera, mechanism yeah. thing because <laughs> she was talking <laughs> through it, saying, hey, Rosie, and then all of a sudden, bing. <laughs> Got her right between <laughs> the eyes. <laughs> but then she figured it out when that sound comes yeah. and the treat's coming. So, so we're so having a little bit of fun with that. And it's going to be all chewed up, you realize. <laughs> 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 so, well, you know, uh, Laurie, I have an interesting story for you. I was talking to one of our uh, loyal listeners, and they said, oh, my goodness, I just love Laurie. I love the way she picks on you all the time <laughs> when, uh, you know, when you, we do podcasts and those virtual conferences. So, Well, Sue pays me royally. <laughs> <laughs> We've actually done quite a number of virtual conferences with you recently, but we haven't talked specifically about the subject of infection control. And, of course, you are one of the nation's leading uh, experts on infection control and certainly handle all the infection control monitoring and uh, oversight for our company. And uh, suffice to say, it's been a slightly busy time for you. Is my sarcasm flowing through? <laughs> no, you, you drip well. You drip very well. Um, <laughs> Lots of questions come in, um, I have to say, and, and I'll, I'll tell you, I, I even see it in um, the accreditation um, organization uh, because they are forever monitoring the, the centers that are on schedule for surveys. So yeah. they're still doing surveys, as, as many of you out there are probably aware of. Yeah. Especially our clients who have all, seems to be, every one of them has been surveyed in the last uh, two months. Right. And I'm, you know, I was scheduled to do a survey earlier this month, you know, out of state. And I had a, a colleague, I was working with a, a partner and that partner was from in-state. So the center started to get kind of nervous because of, you know, everything yeah. that's going on, understandably. And um, reached out to me and said, you know, do you, do you think it's okay if you still come? And I said, well, it's it's really up to you. You know, you're the center. You're the one that's um, asking for the survey. This was obviously not a deemed status survey since I was able to speak with them. Right. And, you know, as it turned out, they opted to not have me come. And my wonderful partner got to do the whole survey by himself yeah. and it a day and a half survey became a two and a half day survey for him. Wow. You know, so that, that'll teach you for living in the same state. <laughs> well, um, we had a survey. One of our clients had a survey that uh, was during a snowstorm. And oh. again, she was very tight uh, in terms of the staffing. And she, um, the second day she, she tried to get a flight out earlier. So she did the second day virtually. Mm. Um, from the hotel room. So luckily she had seen everything the first day. The second day we just sat down and kind of went through all of the the stuff you could talk about and uh, we could share screen. 
um, and also, uh, you know, did the exit that way. It's very, very successful. I do wish that the surveyors would come up with some mechanisms now. I, I'm, I'm hearing that this is happening with uh, Quad ASF and, or, and uh, I believe Joint Commission is experimenting with it. I don't know that C is officially doing any of this, but I, I do think that if we could – um, cut down the amount of time that's on site, you know, do a lot of those things that can be done remotely. Um, you know, people like you and I, you know, surveyors like you and I, we, we talk a lot, of course, uh, or especially me. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of those conversations can occur by a virtual session like what, well, we're, we're actually recording Lori here in a virtual session, even though this is going to be a, uh, uh, a podcast. But uh, uh, I think we've proven that these things can be very successful. They can. It's it's funny, though. I find, I mean, I don't want to consider myself scattered by any means, but... I, I'm just really trying to hold back, but go ahead. <laughs> but when when I'm on a survey, it's it's almost like, you know, when I make fun of you, you know, oh, shiny, shiny things. <laughs> squirrel, squirrel. Yeah, as I'm walking down the hall, all of a sudden something pops in my head because I see something. Yeah. You know? And and so that's where the it's the on site is so valuable is, yeah. because I don't know about you, but I can probably fake it till I make it. Yeah. If I'm sitting in an office with a bunch of books and a computer and some wise people writing me notes to answer mm-hmm. questions of a surveyor that isn't seeing all that. Does that make it wrong? No, mm-hmm. as long as they have the right answers. But I don't think the center gets the value of the survey. I understand we're in different times right mm-hmm. now, um, but I would imagine if we become too complacent, then we're going to find that we're not doing things to the best that we can. And that's the whole purpose of, of um, ambulatory surgery is to provide the highest quality of care. Yeah. Um, so if we get lax, then we're kind of not doing that. Well, and I certainly don't intend to minimize the role of the on-site. I agree with you. I, I just think that that on-site could be much more valuable if all we're doing there is walking around and, mm-hmm. and witnessing firsthand what's happening. I think that um, in a time like this when the, the paperwork can be done in different mm-hmm. ways, uh, if I'm going to be on-site, just let me walk around. Let me meet people. Let me talk. So – We've been uh, witnessing a lot of surveys. Uh, we've had one complaint survey. This is one of our centers that we have not been able to uh, get down to that doesn't really uh, hire us to do a heck of a lot of work for them. And they just had a complaint survey. And unfortunately, they did not fare very well. It didn't seem like they were uh, following the protocols that we established for them and uh, very disappointed to see the results of that survey. But so I, we've been warning people and we've been telling people that the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Santa Claus is watching all the time. <laughs> He's keeping a list. Surveyor and, on the shelf. <laughs> that's There's right. Little, surveyor on the shelf. We'll have to come up with one. We can set. Okay. <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> so uh, so they showed up and found a lot of problems. And, and I'll tell you, the most disappointing thing is I found out that they weren't even screening people when they come in the door. I mean, the most basic, most basic things were not being done there. So uh, – Keep an eye out, everyone, and it's you know. And and by the way, don't tell me I've said this over and over. Don't tell me. Well, don't worry. When the surveyors show up, we're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. But here's the point: is uh, this was a complaint survey. Clearly, a patient uh, must have been uh, watching and didn't feel that they were doing a good job. Could have been an employee, actually. I don't know. Say, or it could have been a staff member that yeah. felt like they weren't being able to do a good job. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now the center's in quite a bit of trouble. Um, 
please, if you're listening to us, uh, understand we're, we're not making these rules up because we're trying to make your life miserable. We're mm -hmm. making them up because they're for the health and safety of our patients, and they are watching. Our employees are watching. A big conversation I've had this last week, Laurie, has been this continuing conversation of what do we do in order to keep our staff from saying they don't want to come into work. So we know in uh, New York City, the mayor um, kind of in, uh, inferred that he was going to be shutting down the city for an, an unexplained period of time uh, after the Christmas holidays. And we've been talking about how we doubt it's going to affect surgery centers from the standpoint of, of them not doing surgery. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm concerned that if they do the shutdown, that our volume is going to drop to near nothing because mm -hmm. the patients are just not going to want to come. And probably more importantly, the employees are not, not Between if schools close or if transportation's an issue right. or anything like that. And I did well, want to say also with your what you were talking about um, with the screening and everything, it, I wonder how much of it has to do with kind of the pandemic fatigue that we've talked yeah. about. You know, I just want to remind everybody that, you know, these people are still watching, like you said, yeah. and, you know, you just got to keep it up. It may be something you're always going to have to do, well, at least for a very long period that. of time, regardless of the vaccine or anything. Yeah. Let's talk about that mm -hmm. for a second, Laura, because before we push the record button we were talking about, mm. uh, you know, what do you feel is not going to change? I mean, I think everybody, you know, yes, we have this fatigue and I think we're all hoping that things are going to uh, uh, go back to what everybody thinks is going to be a normal. But um, there's some things that, that I think we all believe are going to be permanent changes in the way we do business. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of that? Well, I have a feeling that they're going, we're going to keep up with um, some form of social distancing. Um, I, I do believe that um, in the healthcare realm, uh, we're going to be limiting those that accompany a patient. Mm -hmm. And right now, we pretty much shut it down to zero people right. you know, in um, extreme circumstances. I think um, maybe when we open the gates, it might be one person, yeah. truly. Um, and if not, if possible, nobody. Yeah. Um, I think we'll see that in retail as well. I think we'll still see the um, dividers up between cashiers and um, patrons. I think we'll see it in restaurants with the um, dividers between tables mm -hmm. uh, for for quite a while, if not maybe long lasting. Um, do I think masks will be forever? Um, gosh, I hope not. I know. But we might do it in a, in um, healthcare. We might still require people to wear masks in healthcare. Um, you know, maybe not so much at um, the grocery store, but for sure in, in a hospital or in our surgical centers where we're now focused on airborne uh -huh. um, infections. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you figure the hospitals have been doing it for years for the employees that do not um, get the flu vaccines yeah. mm -hmm. during flu season. So you figure from, I don't know, uh, October through March or April. Um, I have a feeling that that's going to be forever. I agree. So I agree. We'll, we'll all have a little uh, thing at the front door um, and everybody gets masks when they walk in. And probably temperature monitoring certain times of the year. Uh, or uh, there are these devices that you can purchase that uh, automatically uh, sense your, your temperature when you mm -hmm. walk in. And that um, may change a little bit, too, to, you know, yeah. more of the regular screening because as we're finding out, temperature isn't yeah, that right. That's true. That's true. Accurate. But at least asking It's a good questions. thing to do. But yeah. and, and people, like you said, just being 
uh, much more aware. Don't don't push through it and go to work if you're not feeling right. well. Yeah. You know, stay home and keep other people safe. And that that's something that's a long time coming. I can remember mm-hmm. constantly sending employees home because they they really thought that they were. Well, actually, I, I remember. I think we talked about this on the podcast too. That you know, it, the old days was uh, that that crotchety old nurse who would come in. That would be you, Lori, would come in and, and work because she was afraid that uh, she was letting the rest of her uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know staff members down. Um, oh, I'm that crotchety old nurse. I'll tell you, I've <laughs> that. I that. You know, it was it right? No. Uh, it wasn't right, not really, because it wasn't a stressed thing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah, it has uh, to come from from the staff members as well as as from leadership. Because yeah. if you feel guilty and you feel like you're really like they're so short staffed that it's going to affect everybody if you don't come in, it, it's kind of hard to put that all on you to just yeah. you know call in when you really don't want to. All right, and you know, so so that's tough. I mean, you know, I so I think things like that. I, I think that um, we will screen closer with our pre-op calls, you know, mm-hmm. um, that sort of a thing. But, um, you know, when it comes to the temperature monitoring, we do that with all our patients now. Yeah, We did it before. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. it was part of their, you know, vital signs. Um, but I do think we might continue that with our staffing, yeah. maybe not with the visitors, but who knows? I mean, it's, it, it's still, uh, everything is in pencil really. I mean, yeah. Well, and, and this equipment, this uh, equipment that you might be purchasing, I know people have been picking up these uh, iPad. Um, I don't know if they actually are iPads, but they're iPad-like devices that you uh, have in your entering way that, that checks your temperature when you walk in. You know, the mm-hmm. signs up front that ask you to, uh, you know, have you been here? If you have any of these symptoms, just turn mm-hmm. around and leave. Um, well, yeah, the more automated you can yeah. make it, the better. Yeah. Uh, and uh, signs on the outside of the door saying, you know, you know, we, you know, if you have this, uh, you know, don't even bother coming in the door because yeah. we're not going to treat you. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and that's across the board, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's whether you're going to your primary care doctor, whether you're going right. for a mammogram, mm-hmm. you know, whether you're going for surgery. I, I mean, here, up here in Massachusetts, um, the governor has done a, another lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, they've pretty much not not so much froze, but they've um, deterred uh, elective procedures in hospitals. Yeah, they um, have now um, starting today. They've put more restrictions on restaurants, health clubs, and whatnot with the amount of people. So they've gone back, I think, to like twenty five percent maximum. They've cut back on the number of people that could be in social gatherings. Um, uh, in public and in their homes, which I, I don't understand how, you know, unless it's, you know, your neighborhood watch is calling in if there's more than yeah. two cars mm-hmm. there. But they've really um, gone back to that just because of the increase of um, cases. cases. But, you know, I, I think it's just more, the more people get tested, the more cases we have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and does that mean we shouldn't get tested? No, it's yeah. just we need to realize that there's going to be a correlation between the two numbers. Uh-huh. Well, and, and that the, the other problem with that type of calculation, too, is it does, you know, I think uh, New York, for example, is 47th in terms of uh, percentage of uh, people that are, um, in other words, low um, in terms of uh, percentage found to have COVID. 
uh, whereas other states are much higher. But of course, New York is testing everybody, not mm-hmm. only testing everybody, but testing everybody multiple times. But see, in they a month. say that, and it's hard for us to get tested. So I know, not, you know, know, true I don't enough. Know. But yeah. well, if you look at the sheer number of yeah. test, tests that are being done, mm-hmm. it's very high compared to other states yeah. who are only testing people that are symptomatic. And I think we get good information from that. But like you said, you just we have do. to be aware of those numbers, what you're looking at. Well, I hate it when, when people make the conclusion, well, New York is safer, you know, because uh, it's got a lower rate of infection than another state. That's really not necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I mean... Job because everybody's leaving New York. All- <laughs> That's true. And, and with our new tax increases, we'll we'll be the next ones out the door. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're heading down to uh, to uh, South Carolina, Sue and I, in in uh, February, and. Uh, you know, maybe we should be looking for a permanent location down there. We have to, we have to bring <laughs> no, the whole unless, family. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not unless I don't know. I'm ready. <laughs> Get away from the snow. We have a nice fresh. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, do you have yeah. snow up there in uh, in uh, yeah. Massachusetts? It's uh, freezing, but look, we had the horrendous. Um, well, I don't know if you guys did when I was in New York uh, yesterday or Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. We had the terrible rainstorms mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. winds and yeah. Uh, it was uh, not fun. I yeah. driving home was worse um, than if it was snowing because yeah. of cleaning and, and stuff like that. But yeah, and then that here in Massachusetts on the Cape, we had the high winds and the rains. I mean, the nice thing is the um, our solar panels are very happy right now because there's nothing. <laughs> <out> there. <laughs> it's like ching, we got another nickel. Um, but there, the snow's almost all gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, it's yeah. on a snow, what, a week ago? Well, we're, we're shipping some your way. So we just got a nice <laughs> little snowstorm last night. So yeah. it's on its way. Not too much, though. <laughs> but that's one good thing about working at home. And I'll yeah. say, mm-hmm. I think that the next thing, and I hate to think of the next thing that might come down the line, but um, I think we're going to be so much more prepared because now yeah. I, I really think a lot of people are, there's going to be some form of working from home. They're going to save a lot of money if they're mm-hmm. not paying rent. Yeah, I mean, like in New York City, that's what you yeah. were talking about. People that are having to, you know, rent office space in New York City, imagine the money that they can save. Well, and, I, you know, we have a couple centers there that, you know, their uh, their business office staff are pretty much, you know, have been working remotely for almost a year now. And uh, we need their space. We've mm-hmm. already taken it, <laughs> mainly yeah, because it's storing, you know, it's mm-hmm. the storage location for all of our PPE for, for yeah. now. But, um, but you know, can you imagine some of these really small centers that could use additional storage space, can use, uh, you know, another consultation room for patients mm-hmm. when they come in prior to the surgery? Yeah. Um, Especially where you might need an isolation room. Yeah. Or- Week 40. Is that yeah. really week 40? Oh, my goodness. I was I, trying to think of the, some questions that we've had. And one thing I, we've been asked several times is, should they mandate the vaccine for their employees? Yeah. I don't think so, but I didn't know if we wanted to have a Yeah, it's an interesting conversation. So uh, we all have our opinions. I, I yeah. Personally, I feel that you probably uh, would have some type of legal problem mm-hmm. forcing that on pa- yeah. patients anyway. Um, so I, I don't think it's reason. I think it's a good question, but I'm not sure that yeah. that the, 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 we know what the answer is going to be. The mm-hmm. question is, what are you going to do with those patients or those employees staff, that yeah. don't uh, take the staff? No. I mean, the obvious answer is, you know, do what we do with the flu right now, mm-hmm. which is you, you mask up. Um I don't know. What are your thoughts on that one, Lori? I, I think it's going to end up, you know, you, you, you see all these different articles online, et cetera. Um, I think it'll end up being similar to the flu. Mm-hmm. I, I do 
think that there has to be some restrictions or, or there has to be some cutouts for those that either have some sort of allergic reaction, mm-hmm. a medical condition, because not everybody is, um, you know, uh, capable of getting the vaccine, depending on just because, you know, you could still be working and have a medical condition, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, so, so there's that. And then of course there's um, those that have different religious beliefs, you, you know, so I think it'll end up being treated in that same manner. And perhaps those, um, those persons, yes, will be masked for a certain amount of time or might have to be masked 24 seven. Because as we saw, this virus started in March, it's now December. So it doesn't have a, you know, a favorite season. True. So it's not like the flu in that respect. So, mm-hmm. you know, those people might be masked the entire time mm-hmm. they're at work um yeah. and they might have to have some other kind of screening you know they, they might take it to the next step i'm sure those that didn't get the flu vaccines again i'm not sure because i didn't work in the hospital but i've always gotten the vaccine would probably just have been wearing their masks because mm-hmm. they didn't have a little thing on their name tag that said yep. i've been vaccinated but i don't know that they were screened for temperatures and things like that but yeah. they will be going forward i'm sure yeah yeah, it's funny because that used to be enough to get most people to get the vaccine in the hospital right. because yeah. nobody wanted to wear the mask. <laughs> <No>. Well, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so true. It, it's very, very true. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually a good... Also, it, it may have to do with the prevalence in the community. I can see it kind of being a constant monitoring of, yeah. okay, you know, anybody who is not vaccinated, the numbers are going up, whether it has to do with season or not. Um, and having to wear the mask kind of like a declared COVID season or something. Well, and I do think, uh, here's a prediction on my part, is that I'm hoping that we're going to start seeing some changes in mask technology. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, I'm wearing a KN95 now, which is a step up from a regular surgical mask because it, it does cover your mouth. doesn't um, it, it looks uh, somewhat like an N95. Uh, doesn't have the same rating and it doesn't hold. I mean, it, you don't have to be fit tested for it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's certainly more protection than a regular uh, mask will wear. The price is dropping. Uh, it's still about a dollar each, dollar mm-hmm. twenty five each, yeah. I think. But my prediction is that we're going to start seeing, you know, people uh, having access to uh, mm-hmm. to better quality masks moving forward, and that we're all going to keep the stock of it, just like we have, mm-hmm. um, you know, socks. <laughs> we're going to have our masks. It's just a matter of which ones are more effective and we we don't let's talk you know, about nobody's saying that they work yeah. 100%. Let's talk about that for a second too, Lori. Uh, do you want to weigh in on uh, gaiters and uh, cloth masks? I really think I want to get one just so that my neck is warm in the- <laughs> <laughs> truthfully. Um but I, I think that uh, See, and the, I, gators, what we're the gators was what John's getting yeah, at. The I, gators have been well, said I that they actually up. make the the particles smaller as you're breathing out. So if you're around somebody who's wearing a gator, yeah. you know, those cloth kind of things that pull up over, you're actually probably less safe. Yeah. So we wish people would And again, we're talking about people that are in the non-surgical areas. Yes. So this would be people yeah. that are going to be, uh, well, first of all, patients, too, coming mm-hmm. in with one on, uh, as mm-hmm. well as our staff members. But that would be in a non-sterile uh, you know, area or non-clean area. Right. I mean, the whole the whole purpose of, of the mask is the filtration. So, you, yeah. you know, you want the fit and you want the filtration. So a cloth mask is adequate but the thing is even with surgical masks if they get wet mm-hmm. they're no longer doing their filter filtering yeah mm-hmm. that's why 
a lot of times they would have a time limit on masks years ago. You know, yeah. you, you needed to change it after so so long because it wasn't as effective as when you first started wearing it. Um, so with a cloth mask, every time you exhale, a little more sputum mm-hmm. comes out, and then your your mask is getting wet, and now it's nice and warm. And so, you know, you, you kind of have to put those things together. Ah, oh, warm, dark, moist. Oh, that's mm-hmm. a great environment to grow things. Yeah. So theoretically, your cloth mask is um, an, a nice little, um, what, what are those? Petri Agri- dish. Agri- <laughs> yeah, Petri Breeding dish. ground. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I throw, if I, I have a couple cloth masks that I might wear like out to the grocery mm-hmm. store or when I'm running in somewhere, I, I throw them in the laundry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's got to be cleaned regularly. Yeah. You know, but at least I'm cleaning them in my my little brain here. I think I'm cleaning them. Mm-hmm. So the the thing with the gators would be the same thing. And then you figure if you're wearing a gator, it's up and down and up and yeah. down and up yeah. and down. So, it's a whole design is uh, yeah. for for that. Yeah. But I like I said, I think it would keep me warm. You know, especially up in this cold. <laughs> I actually saw in one of the online clothing stores that I used to shop at, they have a, a shirt that's sort of like a turtleneck, but you can pull it up and it has loops <laughs> that go over your ears. <laughs> I don't think it's that effective, but I thought, wow. <laughs> now they start <laughs> so you're building. never caught without a mask. <laughs> you know, if they start building filtration systems into it, we've got it made. Um, if, a, if a person's not, uh, refusing to wear a mask, but they'll do that, all right, they're doing something. That's yes. right. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. So, you know, that's you know, baby steps. Mm-hmm. Um, Thing. A question came up uh, this last week, Laurie, and I'm, I'm throwing this out to you without giving you any uh, fair warning about it. But uh, one of uh, my colleagues, uh, actually a friend of ours, um, uh, asked the question whether a an EMS provider, like an EMT, can do the health assessment on an N95. And uh, my immediate reaction was probably no. And then when I researched it, it was an emphatic no. So interesting uh, development there is that uh, when you look at the uh, guidance from OSHA on the health assessment that has to be done on people that are being fit tested for N95s, it does uh, have some information. And I don't want to spend a lot of time because it doesn't affect all of us here. But uh, but an RN is one of those individuals that can do that type of an assessment. Of course, a physician can do that assessment. Uh, but I just want to kind of briefly uh, remind people that that health assessment that has to be done as part of the N95 fit testing is extensive. Uh, I think the recommended form from, is it from OSHA, is like four or five pages long. Yeah, it's, it's, it is involved. It's Yeah, but it has to be done. Can't be done by your uh, your uh, uh, nursing aide. At, you know, this is something that has to be done by somebody who can evaluate the results of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And make some type of medical decision as to whether this patient is is all right. But um, I know we we try to avoid talking about N95s all the time, um, and we, it certainly is not our recommendation that everybody go out and fit test or that uh, we recommend you fit test people for N95s if you're using N95. But it is certainly not a requirement that you wear that, at least in most states right now. And as we mentioned in our last one too about the over masks that. That kind of oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's just briefly talk about that is that in the past, we've been giving advice based upon the best information that wearing a mask over the N95 
um, would uh, first kind of all help save it, it so that mm-hmm. you can not have to replace it in between every procedure. Uh, but now uh, we have guidance that's come out, um, and you assisted in that process through ARN. Do you want to talk a little bit about that since you're the one that uh, kind of uh, provided us this, that information? So in my spare time, I was listening to um, an AORN um, webinar, and they it, it was put on. It was about respiratory protection, and there was a gentleman on it, you know, regarding a type of mask that his company was doing. But in the process, they had mentioned that um, it is recommended that um, with an N95 or any surgical mask, um, that you don't put a mask over it, you could use the shield as the second layer, um, you know, a face shield. And the rationale behind that was because putting a mask over your mask, whether it's an N95 or a surgical mask or whatever, could change the fit on your face. So when I heard that, I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And so I tried to write in a question and I couldn't. Um, so I called them on their um question line that they have uh, a couple days a week to get it clarified because I went on the OSHA site and OSHA says to wear a mask over your mask. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. So yeah. here I am on the phone with, you know, <laughs> my gods of AORN and I had them pull up the site I was looking at, which was the most recent site. Um, and they said, no, they said, oh my gosh, you know, thanks for pointing that out. But no, we, we are, we stand behind that. You don't wear a mask over it. And 3M, who is the main maker of the N95 mm-hmm. also is the one that says, do not put a mask over it. And it's all about the fit because right. now you're kind of, you're pushing it in, yeah. making up, you know, moving the mask around. So um, so I found that very interesting and it's like, oh my God, I've been so rude to all of you people out there <laughs> in radio land. <laughs> well, so let's remind everyone that uh, the, the issue there then becomes if you don't have a face shield, if you're not wearing a mask over it, that means the N95 when you're in a surgical setting is going to have to be replaced in between every single procedure, which will probably pretty much mock out everybody from uh, using an N95, you know, on a procedural basis, unless they have those masks. Now, I, I wore one of those. I, I uh, we did a survey this last week, and I wore one of those masks the entire time. Man, is that different? The, the, the first of all, I couldn't hear anybody, but I could certainly hear myself well because of the vibration back of the of the noise. But uh, you know, my yeah. hearing isn't fantastic as it is, I think. And uh, now I'm, I, you know, you put one of those things on, and and it distorts everything out there, right? I, I even find the the fit of the N95. It's, it's just so. It, it does a great job. It's just so so tight. Yeah, yeah. Um, that it that, that just bothers me. Of course, it ruins my hair. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's just it, it's just like oh boy. You know, so getting used to that is is tough. But the whole point is, it's it's what's the safest that you can do for yourself, and if your employer provides it and you're in that procedure room or that operating room where there is that higher risk of um, contamination, then, you know, again, it's your choice unless they're forcing you to wear the N95, but you know, it's something that you really have to think about. Now um, I'm having flight of ideas again and here we go. Oh yeah. 
dead squirrel. It'll come back, <laughs> um, you know, because there, there was something that I wanted to point out, but whatever. It, it, it'll it'll fly in. <laughs> well, I think, I th- but I think it is important that you really very uh, uh, very carefully consider your N95 uh, program. Um, mm-hmm. One of the points that I've made to people is that there are no real uh, regulations that require people to wear the N95. Often, the reason that we have it is because the employees feel safer with it, or that might be the reason they're coming back to work. We've had situations where the anesthesiologists have said, we're not going to work at your center unless you provide us with N95 masks. Sounds like you uh, you remember what you were going to say. I did. I did. <laughs> I saw it go right across the screen when you said program. <laughs> so back in the beginning of uh, COVID time, when we all ran out or when many centers ran out and got their N95 masks, it was polite uh, that we kind of got a waiver when it came to the fit testing and whatnot um, because it was something that we didn't normally do and we were having trouble uh, finding ways to get it. So it was almost like we got grandfathered a little, you know, the ASCs when it came to the actual fit test for the N95 and the assessment. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not the case anymore, people. Right. Like we said, it's been 40 weeks. So there's now there's been ample opportunity. So the the whole purpose when when this all came out and we all had to have that respiratory protection program for our centers was that the intent is that we do that on an annual basis. Yeah. Um, we had you know had to show that in good faith we had attempted. Well, it's now nine months, so you better have hopefully done that good faith and gone out and now have performed that for your staff members. Exactly. Because if OSHA comes in, they're going to expect that. And who knows, you might have a surveyor that's um, privy to that information and is going to ask you, well, why haven't you done it? You've had more than enough time to get this done. You're, You're not doing the service to your staff that you're supposed to. Let's uh, talk for a second about OSHA there because uh, unlike surveyors, uh, and in most states, even the state surveyors don't have the ability to fine you for uh, not, um, you know, complying with the regulations. You know, the, 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 the only thing that, uh, that uh, 888C and Joint Commission and Quad ASF and those other surveyors can do is, is report to CMS and CMS can take your license away. But there's usually not a – well, from a federal standpoint, there is no um, fine associated with – some of the states do levy fines. Um, but OSHA can and does, and these fines are not small, you know, small potatoes. They're, uh, you know, five figure, at least sometimes six figures, depending upon the size of the organization, the size of the violation. So again, failure to follow those, those, uh, uh, OSHA guidelines, uh, can, can result in a a substantial financial, uh, hit to the organization. And we know that surveyors are out there from OSHA that are looking around for this because, you know, OSHA's always had a very strong um, program for uh, uh, inspections. Uh, they just haven't spent a lot of time, certainly very little time in surgery centers in the past, not as a lot of time in hospitals. But you can bet that that's their new hotspot. That's what they're going to be spending a lot of their uh, resources now inspecting our locations. Right. And, and you know, when you think about it, we're out there banging the, the drum saying that we're a safe environment, that we can perform those surgeries that are not being done in the hospital right now due to the increase of, um, you know, COVID patients and the need to be able to um, 
service them accordingly. So it, you know, who else would OSHA want to look at if we're the ones that are doing those surgeries now? And obviously, you're still going to have some possible rift between hospitals and surgical centers, and the hospitals might feel yeah. that, yes, we're taking their cases from them that they can't do anyway. Yeah. Whistleblowers are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're everywhere. You know, it's not like Sue said, the surveyor on the shelf. It's, I mean... Yeah. It doesn't take much. And, and so, you know, we have to really be on our our A game, even more so than um, than we always were, um, because it's almost like reinventing ourselves now. And I, to that point, we have to recognize that the very fact that we are doing all of these precautions and the more we make a big deal out of it will help us down the road when we're trying to convince patients to come back to us. Patients are going to, they're going to know, and, and they're watching us, and they want to know that they're going to a safe environment. I want to know, I mean, I, I don't go to grocery stores anymore. We have all the food delivered because I know that's probably, it's certainly a lot less safe in a grocery store than it is in one of our surgery centers. Um, you, people don't necessarily <clears throat> want to go to hospitals anymore unless they absolutely have to because that's where, unfortunately, the COVID patients have to go. Um, so if you can, uh, if we can avoid that, if we can make our... Um, our patients uh, feel safer because we're taking all these precautions and then advertising that um, we're likely to be able to stay open longer. Lori, can you talk a little bit about what precautions, we really haven't actually gotten to the, the important question here is what, uh, what should we be doing now? What are some of the new changes that we're doing uh, with regard to ongoing cleanliness? And let's talk about uh, environmental uh, cleaning, for example. And, I'm making the presumption now that this is permanent too, that, you know, that, that extra person that you hired in order to do that cleaning, uh, don't lay them off at the end of the year, that they're going to be part of uh, your organization forever. So talk a little bit about how environmental change, uh, environmental cleaning has changed, how it's most likely going to be permanent or, or not. Tell me if it's, I'm wrong, but go ahead. No, I, I do think it'll be permanent. I mean, so, you know, dial back a year and, um, our patients would come in and some of us had, uh, changing rooms and we might have had lockers and, you know, the patients were assigned, um, you know, given their gown and whatnot and given a locker and they would put their clothes in the locker. Um, and then at the end of the case, you know, someone would get their stuff out of the locker and bring it to the bedside. They'd get dressed. And then meanwhile, now someone else went in the locker, a lot of places. And, um, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, in my heart, I know I'm not didn't clean the lockers till the end of the day. Right. So yeah. that might have been part of either the end of the day uh, cleanup or it could have been part of your um, environmental service company that came in. They, they clean the lockers. Um, now, you know, we should be cleaning them between every patient. Just, you know, it's just when you, when you sit back, it's like, well, gee, that makes a lot of sense now, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, but it was something else that we just it wasn't in our wheelhouse. We weren't even thinking about that, you know, that someone's shirt and pants and coat and underwear and whatnot are just sitting on the shelf in there and the next person's shirt and pants and underwear, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Um, and you know, it's all surface. So you figure we, we are contaminating everything that we walk by. Um, so, you know, there's just that. So if you have 30 patients a day, and you have, say, you know, 10 lockers or whatever, you're con you're turning over those lockers constantly. You're cleaning the restroom in the, in the waiting area 
way more than you had, well, should be way more than you were before. The only time you clean the restroom usually was if a patient or a family member came out and said, oh, you know what, um, there's there's something wrong in the bathroom. I, I think it needs to be yeah. looked at. You know, and, and, and that's usually how you found out. Why? Because staff aren't going in those bathrooms. Right. We're, we're not, you know, was we're not thinking about that. You know, the CDC recommends um, that things get cleaned. I The other day I was um, at a place I had to go for uh, my mammogram, and they had signs up that they clean every, uh, I think it was, it said every three hours due to the CDC recommendations. Truthfully, I haven't looked at it to see if that's true. But... You know, the fact is they were advertising that they're doing that. And sure enough, while I was there, someone came in and was cleaning the two little changing areas, wiping down the um, handles on the lockers. They weren't even using lockers, but the staff would open the locker to get your, you know, your gown out. Um, you know, so and, and now they have you carrying your bag of clothes with you everywhere you go. Yeah. You know, so it's just things like that. Um, never mind, you know, the doorknobs the phones that, you know, we might've cleaned them if we knew somebody had a cold mm-hmm. and sitting at the desk and using the phone. And then we went to use the phone. We might wipe it down. Well, no, now we're doing it constantly or should be doing it constantly. So no, there's an awful lot of extra, extra wiping, extra cleaning that that's going on that you can't always, um, the nurses don't always have the time for it. So as you said, John, you might have hired someone new or you might have had an aide that would help with other things. Well, now they're running double time. And you know what? They're tired too. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's just we can't overlook that part um, anymore, um, keeping our, our offices neater, tidier, whatever, you know. Well, it does raise an interesting question is many organizations, um, you know, hire an outside cleaning service to come in uh, because it's more cost effective or in the past have been more cost effective for this. Uh, and the main reason for that is because uh, they could do the cleaning after hours as opposed to doing it during, um, you know, regular working hours. A mm-hmm. um, number of years ago when I uh, – last surgery center I built before I, I did what I'm doing now full time um, – I, I was so frustrated with the number of times I had to change cleaning services. I ended up hiring somebody to do the cleaning, bought all the equipment that I needed to do all the cleaning. And we had a wonderful uh, program there because, first of all, we had total control over the cleaning. Um, you know, the, the person would start later in the day so that he would go into the evening hours so that we're still doing that, you know, cleaning that needed to be done when nobody was there. Uh, and it worked out very well. And it was actually very cost effective. Um, I've over the years uh, to our clients, I've recommended when they run into the same challenge that I've had here, especially when they're very upset about the, the, the quality of the cleaning, uh, to consider doing this. So I, I would uh, personally, I mean, this is just my own recommendation certainly look into it, especially if you already have hired somebody now to do the extra cleaning, uh, you know, hiring somebody in addition or a part-time person to supplement that, um, can take you from a situation where you're hiring an outside clean company who you have to supervise anyway, who you have to train anyway in how to clean in your organization. By the way, if you're not doing that, all of those outside cleaning companies, I don't know if we've ever mentioned this before, they need to go through OSHA training. They need to demonstrate to you that they've gone through both OSHA and OSHA bloodborne pathogen training. And if they have not, then you have to provide that training to them. And the first day before they start working there, every new employee, which by the way, in some of these cleaning companies could be every week, um, has to be trained 
on cleaning in your organization. They have to know the equipment, the supplies that are available there, uh, and they need to be supervised. They can't just be, uh, you know, thrown into that organization. So that my conclusion after, you know, thinking this thing through and realizing the higher level of cleaning, just like you said, that people are just constantly doing it throughout the day, maybe it's time to, to chuck the, uh, the cleaning company and then bring it fully in-house. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, and the other thing, too, is that um, you have to, hopefully, that they're using the products that you have recommended, right. um, that they're using them the way that the uh, manufacturers intended them to use them. Right. Um, that they're not just bringing in, you know, um, oven cleaner because they know it gets the, the grime off the silver stuff. What's that, um, uh, that so stuff that, that our cleaning person uses, Sue, that we found in one of the surgery centers that we're using? Fabuloso. Fabuloso. Yeah. No, no, uh, not being critical about Fabuloso. However, (laughs) it is not an appropriate cleaning product in a surgery center. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, the other thing too is we don't, it's usually the surveyors that'll, that'll find out unless, unless you, you're really very up on, on top of everything because you have nothing else to do in your surgical center. (laughs) Um, When you go into the closet uh, where the cleaning supplies are, and they have them all put out into their different containers that aren't labeled. Yeah. You know, that's oh, I love that. <laughs> it's a lot of documentation that we have to send back to to the uh, crediting organization. But yeah, exactly. They're in trouble and now. That turns out to be an OSHA violation. Yeah, true. You know, so you know that's a that's a double whammy. You know, so it's just it's just things like that. And if it's you know. <sighs> And I'm not saying cleaning companies don't have pride because they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, when people work hard, they're they're proud of what it is that they do. Um, but the other thing too is if if you did have someone in house, if you were if you were um, fortunate enough or um, to be able to hire your own cleaning crew and whatnot, then they're there all you know they're with your staff. You're they're mm-hmm. working with you. Um, they see the results. They they hear the patients say, "Wow, this is really yeah. clean." you know, or, or things like that. And, and then they have, you know, that's, that's a sense of pride for them. And it's a sense of pride for, for you, the center that, you know, it, that it's noticed and, and that you, you know, appreciate the person that's there. But yeah, most of it is after hours, but there's a lot being done now right in front of us that um, there's one center that the, the nurse goes and gets the patient from the waiting area, brings them back with, you know, they change in the bathroom then they have them um, on the stretcher. They're looking over their permit or whatever. And the nurse is running into the bathroom to clean the bathroom after the patient changed in there. Yeah. Do I think that's smart? No. Yeah. Yeah. Do I think that bathroom is getting cleaned appropriately? <laughs> Probably not. No. I mean, you know, it's she like doesn't a, have the time. She doesn't have the time to do it. Absolutely right. She's doing it as quickly as she can because she's got to get right. back to take care of the patient, which is her real job. So I yeah, agree. and and the fact then is that now the doctors tapping their toes because it's taking you longer to admit the patient. Yeah, you know, is is that a wise use of of uh, personnel? De- definitely not. And there's that patient sitting there going, okay, well, she just kind of left me here or, or he left me here. And, you know, so it's, it's sometimes things, you know, we don't, we don't always think we're, Oh, we're going to save a nickel. Well, no, you're going to really end up costing you more in the, in the long run. Um, well, and the advantages of having it uh, in-house also, uh, they can help with turnover, um, mm-hmm. you know, 
uh, all of those other cleaning functions that uh, your staff uh, is doing uh, now, which is, as you said, have become much more uh, uh, difficult during this time, uh, you could push off on other individuals. And it's great to have that person cleaning throughout the day. So you can see that. The patients can see that. Your staff can see that. They're going to feel safer. Yeah. Yeah. No, and it's true. And the more time you as a a caregiver spend at the bedside, the, the safer the patient feels. So I guess now we should talk about vaccine, <laughs> and uh, uh, we're recording on uh, on December 26th. Uh, the vaccine has been out uh, for about two weeks now. The second vaccine uh, has uh, started shipping also. Um, a daily question we're getting from our clients is, should I apply for um, getting the vaccine? I will uh, tell you that our general con- – our, um, our, our general concern is that the responsibility that you take in – um, becoming a vaccination site, even if it's just for your employees, I think is massive. Uh, Lori, you, you've been doing a lot of research for our clients uh, on what needs to be done as part of this. And uh, um, can you just talk a little bit about the challenges of being uh, a site that administers vaccines before people decide whether they're going to actually get the vaccine themselves? Well, you really have to, you really have to do your homework you know, each center needs to do their homework um, and find out what vaccine will be available to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, all right, that's great. Now you, I think you, you want to get a, a consensus of your staff of who's willing to get it. Right. So now you kind of have an idea of how many doses you need. Great. Now you need to find out the vaccine that you are able to get or possibly able to get. What are the restrictions that it has when it comes to um, the amount that you can receive? Yeah. Um, is there storage restrictions? Such is as the there, Pfizer one, which requires right. very low you know, temperatures. The, the, you know, so are you able to um, keep it at that below zero temperature? Um, if not, I believe it has a five-day shelf life at mm-hmm. regular temperature. But again, you have to read the manufacturers. You have to understand what the manufacturer is telling you. And then, all right, so let's let's pretend there's a five-day window that you can keep it in your regular medication refrigerator. Are you truly monitoring it 24-7? Yeah. You know, the, so this is – And are you, you know, using one of those dorm room refrigerators that I see all over the place but are totally inappropriate for vaccine storage? Actually, they're inappropriate for any uh, medication storage. Yeah. So, so you know, you got to think about that because now, I mean, this vaccine is brand new. I mean, we don't know the, the, the total ramifications it can have on us. And if we in any way have tampered it, you know, mm-hmm. tampered with it, you know, how liable are we? Right. Um, if you have a pharmacy consultant, get them on board with this, you know, talk to them, get their opinion and have them do a, like a, it's almost like you have to do a risk assessment. Mm-hmm. You know, are you able to do it? Now, the other thing is, all right, what are the side effects of the vaccine? The potential side effects of the vaccine. So does that mean um, everybody gets lined up and gets shot all on Monday and then they're all out on Wednesday and Thursday yeah. because of the side effects? Do you stagger them? You know, throughout the week, you know, especially if you have a five-day window to give the vaccine, um, are there any um, medical conditions that these uh, your your staff members have that would warrant that they shouldn't get the vaccine? There's a lot that goes on with yeah. this. 
Um, are you capable of making that decision? Yeah. You know, so, and then um, if you do the Pfizer one, are you ready to do this again in a month? That's right. Yeah. Well, both of them require a revaccination. So uh, the, the two that are out there as of December 26th uh, right now require revaccination. Yeah. And you're right. And, you gotta be a, and then you've got to follow up with those patients mm-hmm. uh, or your employees uh, if uh, to, to kind of hound them to get that mm-hmm. vaccination on that second date. And now you're suddenly taking on a responsibility that uh, usually primary care physicians and, and uh, hospitals have. Yeah. Or um, if you're having high turnover right now, yeah. there's... What do you do if somebody leaves? Yeah, what happens if somebody leaves between the two vaccinations? And reporting. You know, um, what are the reporting requirements that go along once you receive the vaccine? Um, You know, so so there's all that. Now, um, do you have to designate who in your center is um, uh, worthy of the vaccine? Um, And how are you going to avoid the family members of those employees wanting to come in and get their vaccinations too? too. There's a lot of ethical issues in my view on this too. Definitely. And and the thing is, all right, if this is, if it's for front frontline workers and healthcare workers, what happens to the poor person sitting at the front desk? Yeah. Are they, are they not allowed to get it or your billing person or, you know, so you, you know, there's, you need to, you, you please do your homework, find mm-hmm. out what is required. So, you know, I mean, I don't care what state you're in, you have to know what your state or even your county mm-hmm. is telling you because, you know, within our states, we have different rules. I'm, I'm sure that in New York, the, the governor and the mayor might have different opinions. I know yeah. in Massachusetts, they do, um, you know, so it's just, it's just things like that. You have to be doing your homework. Um but again, uh, please talk to your pharmacy consultant. Um, have him or her give their opinion as well. And let's talk just for a second about the import. A couple things that you, if you are going to do the vaccinations, you're going to need to have a vaccination program, a uh, written uh, program that outlines how you're going to handle the medications, how you're going to administer uh, the various questions that have to be asked, the availability of the uh, in, uh, information that you provide to the patients logging up the storage of the vaccine. And then the, there is a form that uh, uh, you should be using uh, as part of your vaccination program that documents uh, how uh, you have uh, administered that vaccine to your employees and who you administered it to. Right. So the um, the vaccine inventory log that um, Sue created, um, when you receive the vaccine, what you're going, what you should do, you know, based on the, the uh, requirements and stuff is you want the date and time you received it, the, the name of the vaccine, kind of makes sense, the mm-hmm. manufacturer of the vaccine, um, how it was packaged. Did it come in single dose files, multi-dose files, uh, pre-filled syringes, that sort of thing. Um, the condition on arrival was the package, you know, an excellent condition, acceptable or damaged. Now, remember, if you get damaged vaccines, you should be returning those. You don't want to you know, you don't want to open up that can of peas that has a dent in it because it could be compromised. Uh-huh. Um, the lot number of the um, the vaccine, the number of doses that would be, um, you know, that you received, um, and the expiration date that would be on the vial, and then the staff initials who received it. But remember, once you pop the top of your vial, it's only good for X number of days, depending on the manufacturer's instructions, or it could be the 28-day rule. Um, Which is the default rule, yeah. Overall. And then um, what you're going to do is you're going to put the date that you administered the vaccine and the time you administered 
You're going to just verify that you checked the expiration date. Um, you're going to then how many doses are left. So it's almost kind of like think about when you're um, you have your narcotics and you're pouring out of your um, codeine um, elixir bottle, you know, because mm-hmm. you're keeping your tabs of how many um, yeah. mLs you've removed. Yeah, because uh, there is a requirement that you at least do a weekly, I think CDC says a weekly check, but this way you're probably giving all these doses in a fairly short amount of time. So if you're just keeping a running total as you're giving it, that that more than meets yeah. that requirement, I would think. And then, then put the initials of the person that you gave it to and mm-hmm. also the initials of the person that gave it. You know, obviously you're going to fill out the, the paperwork that will go in your employee files regarding um, the vaccine itself. Um, but this will give you a, a, a quick look at if all of a sudden you find that that lot number got um, recalled or whatnot. Now you have you have it all in one place instead of pulling out 27 employee files to see yeah. which mm-hmm. lot number they got. You know, it's an internal form that you're using. It's secured, um, you know, and you're not giving out any information just by having initials on it. I guess we should remind everybody that uh, under USB 797, this is a multi-dose vial. Uh, any of these flu vaccines, so they need to be drawn up outside of the patient care area, which in this case would be the patient care area would be wherever you would administer that medication to your own employee. So, yeah. Okay, Lori, um, thank you for your time. This has been a very uh, wide, uh, uh, r- wide range <laughs> conversation, a plethora <laughs> of information. So, uh, I deeply appreciate your time. This won't be the last time you're on. Probably the last time this year, but. And uh, just uh, for our audience, too, as Lori and I are trying to fit in sometime in January a, uh, you know, a couple hour uh, infection control uh, seminar, I guess we would call it, uh, that would be used for training your staff, like providing in-service education for your staff as well as for your infection control coordinator. And Lori, let's give a push for CAPE. Ooh, push. (laughs) (laughs) Well, CAPE is the um, the CAIP, yeah for um, certification for um, ambulatory infection prevention. So it's it's specific to the ASC world um, as opposed to the, um, the CIC, which is, you know, like the godfather of infection control. Um, so it, it's, it's a little more, um, it's definitely more palatable for, for us in our um, arena. So it's been around, I think, two years now, um, and it's it's a great tool um, to use for understanding infection control. It also gives you a lot of credibility in your center um, if you have someone that is certified in infection control, because you know, as you know, um, you're you should have someone designated in house that oversees your infection control plan. Some states require that you have a certified infection control um, expert as a consultant or on staff as well. So um, I believe John is working hard to push that the CAPE um, credential would suffice that um, Mm -hmm. where it's pretty new. You know, it's hard to get people on the, the right side of the law, so to say, but it's, it's great. And the thing with the, um, once you have the credential, though, you need to maintain it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot that goes along with it, um, you know, for for keeping up your um, credits and whatnot. You know, John made me take the test, <laughs> <laughs> and, and she passed it. <laughs> and 
on and the first said, try. The old, you almost did it for the oldest person. <laughs> <laughs> Great. It sounded like my mother. You almost failed your nursing exams. Oh, thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we really so – for more information about CAPE, go to uh, – aboutcape.org, which is A-B-O-U-T-C-A-I-P.org. And Lori, I believe you're doing a, a training session on it in uh, February with uh, ASCA, correct? Yeah, ASCA um, is, well, it's, ASCA is putting on a program, a, a two-day uh, program that on infection prevention. It will also help those of you that are um, thinking of becoming CAPE certified, um, you know, study for the exam. But um, it's it's also out there for all infection prevention, so it's like a twofold type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I gotta I gotta work on that. So there's a, there's a number of us that are are going to be presenting. Um, I don't know if it's February first and second or third and fourth. It's a, a Monday, Tuesday in February. Okay. Uh, but um, you know, please go on the ASCA website if if you're interested and. In, you know, I, the way I look at it is if you love infection control, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's great. If you feel that it's um, something that you should know, for sure, you, you really should know it, mm-hmm. especially now in, in this, the world that we're in right now, you can't, you can't know enough on infection control. It's constantly changing. I always appreciate the input from um, all of you guys out there when you have questions and you challenge me and, you know, it doesn't take much to challenge me, um, but, no but I'm, I'm always, I'm always learning. I mean, and, and like those, those poor people at AORN are like, Oh my God, it's her again. You know, they must see when my phone number comes through, they're like, all right, whose turn is it? But, <laughs> to answer Lori's questions. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, they're, they're a great source. They're big on infection prevention as well. I mean, I don't care where you are. SGNA is big on infection yeah. prevention. You know, um, uh, the ASPAN, you know, it's it's a vital part of our world now that when we first were nurses or, you know, cl- clinicians, we never really thought about it because somebody else was doing it. Yeah. And, and now we're the ones that are doing it. So um, I, I say, please, Please um, consider it. Uh, you know, if you don't pass, okay, just don't tell anybody you're taking it. <laughs> like and, me, pretend. And Laurie, um, I do want to mention too that uh, we still have available your uh, infection preventionist uh, program. Go to the ASCPodcast.com website. You can uh, rent it, uh, get a certificate at the end of the uh, program demonstrating that you watch it, and that will help demonstrate to uh, your surveyors that you have been trained on ASC infection control program um, creation. And we'll probably repeat that. Well, we will repeat that program uh, live again sometime in the, in the spring when we find time to do that. <laughs> and, and the thing is, too, if, if – People that are listening, if you have questions or you, you know, there's topics you would really like to have addressed, tell John. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we're not being sarcastic. Yeah, yeah. Just, no, you know, send no, us information. And, and, no, and he'll let me know because I'd <clears throat> yeah. rather us talk about things that you want to hear about yeah. instead of things that we think you might want to hear about. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm good at making things up. Um, <laughs> well, I, Sue is actually, of all people, Sue has been pushing recently uh, to do a live podcast where we would have that, you know, question and answer period. I think that's a great idea. We just haven't had the 
yeah, it yeah. takes a little bit of organizing to do it. But uh, I agree, Sue, that we uh, we need to, you know, open up the lines and ask people what 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 really is bothering them. So yeah, if you have any questions, please uh, you know, uh, send them. There's, a no, there's no foolish questions, and yeah. and God knows you. Anyone that's listened to us <laughs> before knows that I don't have all the answers. And you know, I've jumped up from the desk and grabbed books while we're mm-hmm. live. You know, because what you know, I. Please, my head is so full of cobwebs that I don't have room <laughs> to put knowledge in there. Um, but it's 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 great, and and you know I, I think that the more we know, the the more dangerous we are. But yeah. also the the better prepared we are. Um, you know, just like this whole thing with COVID. You know, we all jumped on. Yeah. You know, to, to keep everybody safe, and that's that's uh, I applaud every center out there for doing their part and not crawling under a rock and, and giving up because, you know, that's so much easier to do, but yeah. you know, we met the challenges and they're, they're still there and they're never going away now. Right. Never going away. And on that depressing note. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. But thank you. As always, Lori, thanks so much for uh, taking this Saturday after Christmas when we probably could be, uh, doing other things, though I'm not sure what we would be doing now. Um, and I really ap- deeply appreciate your time. for, uh, and, and we'll bring you back. Maybe we should have you back every month. How's that? Oh, you, you just tell me and I'll be there. <laughs> I know. Yeah, your so. wish is my command. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, Sue just ran out of the room getting sick. <laughs> so, again, thank you so much. And uh, you have a great uh, remaining Christmas holiday. Yeah, you guys too. Take care. Bye. Bye. In this segment, we discuss other learning opportunities in the ASC industry. If you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please send the event information to info at ASCpodcast.com. Now, those of you that have been listening to the podcast for a long time note that we have changed the <laughs> words in this because we used to say you are never alone in the ASC industry. And I think all we're of us can say we're, we're starting to feel a lot of, very, very alone lately <laughs> because we can't go out to these conferences. So, um, but, uh, but it is important that we keep you up to date with what is going on, uh, even if it is virtual right now, and what's available, too, on the ASCpodcast.com website. So So the ASC Association's Winter Seminar is now a virtual conference. Um, That will be January 11th, 19th, and 25th. This popular seminar, which is now a virtual event, as I mentioned, provides essential training for ASC billers and coders. During three afternoons in January, you'll hear from industry experts as they discuss the coding and billing updates for 2021 and share strategies you can use to maximize your ASC's reimbursements. And ASCA 2021 is also virtual this year. So instead of just like in 2020, um, they've had to go virtual. And this will be held on three days, April 26th, May 3rd, and May 10th. And I believe those are, I can't remember what day of the week it is, but they are a week separated. Uh, some uh, the same content uh, that they do for the annual conference mm-hmm. will be delivered virtually. 
Um, then they, they have said that they want to get back to in, in person soon. Now, uh, I'm on the education committee and we have had uh, quite a number of conversations about this, but I have still not seen an agenda. And I, I know I'm speaking. I uh, got to admit, I can't even remember what I'm speaking about. So, uh, hopefully that agenda will come out soon and we'll be able to give more information about what's going to be available. Mm-hmm. And the 2021 virtual infection prevention for ASC's seminar is February 1st and 2nd. And Lori will be one of the speakers. Absolutely. Get the resources you need to develop and maintain an infection prevention program that protects your patients and your ASC. This course, which is comprised of two four-hour days, will also help you prepare for the Certified Ambulatory Infection Preventionist, or CAPE, exam. And the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrator Seminar is March 1st and 2nd. And the former name for this was the CASC Review Course, by the way. So the CASC Review Course has changed its name a little bit of the content, too, into the 2021 Virtual Management Essentials for ASC Administrators Seminar. A little bit longer. Um, And I'm one of the speakers. I'll be doing the financial section of this. Uh, As I said, it's March 1st and 2nd. So ASC leaders must be well-informed and prepared to meet all the applicable federal regulatory requirements and accrediting organizational standards. Hear from expert faculty with extensive experience in ASC management as they discuss what ASC leaders need to know about compliance, finance, and quality management. And the credentialing workshop that we recorded live on December 8th is available by going to the ASC podcast website at ASCpodcast.com. And we are getting a number of people that signed up afterwards. We had a lot of people that attended it, but it was a very well-received workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really, I mean, a seminar, I guess, is the term that we use for it. And uh, it, it provides, uh, it's really designed more for people that are in the in the weeds in credentialing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, use it to train your credentialing coordinator on how to do proper credentialing. And administrators need to have it, too, so that they know what their, their credentialing coordinator is doing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, probably the most exciting thing that's been going on is uh, the Administrators Boot Camp. I can't believe it's uh, only about three weeks away. Uh, prepare for the challenges of ASC administration by participating in the ASC Administrators Boot Camp. And there is only one slot left in the winter cohort. So another one is scheduled for July, and more information will come out after this one is done. Uh, and also, we are going to be uh, working on another uh, Administrators Boot Camp program that will be more virtual. In other words, instead of including a live section, it'll be a mentored program uh, with uh, recording. So that'll be available throughout the year. So there'll be a couple different options available for administrators, depending upon the way in which they want the material to be delivered. The boot camp includes reading materials, virtual private consultations with myself, and an intensive four-day virtual conference presented in January 2021 from uh, January 26th to the 29th. The program is really designed for new administrators, administrators that wish to enhance their skills, and administrators that wish to prepare for certification. Uh, the ASC Administrators Bootcamp is the industry's most comprehensive preparation for the role of an ASC Administrator. So, uh, and we are working to try to find a way to make this really available year-round, as I said. So, mm-hmm. uh, more information, go to ASCpodcast.com. Sue, we forgot to mention that if you're interested in all those things at ASCA, go to the ASCassociation.org website. I, I can't believe it's not in the, uh, the script there. And, you know, please, we always always want to encourage people to become a patron member of the podcast. Patron members, uh, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links uh, to important uh, websites, policies and procedures, forms, uh, drill kits, you know, example drills that you can perform, 
discounts and services and books and access to AEU credits on a quarterly basis. Membership fees help to defray the cost of producing the podcast, which seems to be growing every day as we uh, wear out our equipment here, including our research staff, travel costs when we actually do travel, mm-hmm. uh, now equipment costs uh, and production costs. For more information, you may visit asc-central.com or go to ascpodcast.com and follow the links for becoming a member. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, please, and consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calritis, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. We would like to thank our sponsors, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, Surgical Information Systems, Encompass Healthcare Data Solutions, BHG Patient Lending, Medicus IT, and Intel Air. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.